debate. We're going to start today with a conversation with Bruce Cleveland, founding partner at Wildcat Venture Partners. And for those of you who may be, uh, may have been around in the 90s and the early 2000s, one of the most successful ventures in the history of enterprise software of the time was Siebel Systems. And Bruce was an integral part of Siebel Systems, one of the first few, one of the key people who built Siebel Systems to multi-billion dollars in revenue. Bruce, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. So tell us about uh, what you're doing with Wildcat Venture Partners. Given your background, you must have brought something unique to the perspective of Wildcat Ventures. So tell us what uh, what is what are the specifics of this venture? Well, Wildcat uh, is a um, actually uh, a, a joining of two different groups, uh, three people from a former firm and me from another firm. Uh, that one firm is winding down and the other moved to pure healthcare. And we elected a couple of years ago to build a brand new platform to do early stage software investing. And um, I've actually known uh, my partners for many years. Um, all of us, one of the unique aspects of our particular firm is we all come from an operating background. So uh, we've helped uh, one of my partners build a company uh, from scratch that was acquired by Oracle for, and uh, generated about a billion two for his uh, for his help, his investors, and um, and then of course you know I, I I had the fortune of working at a number of interesting companies. I started in Silicon Valley at at Oracle when it was a small company of I think sub hundred people and uh, went on from there. And I was uh, one of the first employees of a, of a gentleman by the name of Tom Siebel of Creative Siebel Systems. That's, that's my involvement with, with, with Tom. So we all come from building uh, from very early stage companies. We've, we've built companies and we wanted to take those lessons that we learned uh, by us being entrepreneurs to see if we could uh, provide um, a set of operating principles and build a playbook to enable um, early stage, what we might classify as seed or Series A, even Series B companies, um, if we could provide um, a set of operating principles that would enable companies to be to successfully um, traverse something that we call the traction gap, and we could talk about that a little bit later. But basically, we're a, we're a firm of four people. Uh, we we've raised a transitionary fund. Uh, and now we're in the middle, and we've invested that across about 23 companies. We've, uh, we're now in the middle of raising our second fund, um, again, with the same principles, early stage investing focused on software across B2B and B2C um, with, uh, with the intent of using these operating principles to generate um, a better-than-average success rate. Uh, we realized that across each of us, most of the companies that we've invested in are companies that in in a in a in this get in this period of time, there's roughly around an 80, maybe almost a 90% failure rate. And when we did some introspection of our own investing track record and our operating track record, we've had about a 70% success rate with this same at the same period of time. So we've taken those principles, codified them into a framework. We use that to help us with our companies, and we're focused in again on these early stage software companies. So that's what uh, that's what we do. So we'll uh, spend some time um, after this conversation on 
specifically the traction gap uh, framework. Let me ask you a few more questions about the fund so we know what kinds of entrepreneurs you would be interested in within our community. Um, what sized investments do you make and what is the size of the fund? So our first fund, as I said, was a transitionary fund. We raised about $60 million. Uh, we, we both came from very large firms, so most mm -hmm. of the limited partners that we had prior to forming Wildcat, many of them could not be investors in Wildcat because we wanted to create a smaller fund. So um, the, the fund size, we will never raise a fund bigger than 200 to $250 million. Uh, the data shows that it's very, very hard to generate um, venture returns off of larger funds. Uh, yes. So that's one of our policies. Um, we look to invest roughly around, uh, we'll do seed funds, we'll do, I mean, we'll, we'll invest in seed rounds, uh, 100K, 250K, up to maybe 1 million. We will, um, uh, but a normal investment, a full-size investment, will be somewhere around, um, around six, to, 6 to 8 million. Um, and initially maybe four to five. And uh, the, the issue is on some of the ones that we're doing, maybe that at a little later stage we'll invest more. But, uh, you know, you can expect anywhere from around four to six as being the initial investment. All in, if you added reserves, a full investment over the course of the history of a company it might be 10, 11 million. So um, our community's work, as you can imagine, is with the very early stages. So um, when you say you're willing to do seed, can you elaborate? Because uh, what's happened in the seed ecosystem, uh, I'm sure you're following this, is that uh, there are 500 600 to 600 uh, micro VCs that have come into the business in the last five years or so, maybe a little more. And uh, they are, the, that seed ecosystem has fragmented into pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, Small Series yes. A and then the four, five, six million dollar, you know, traditional Series A. So, yeah. uh, where in that continuum do you like to peg yourself when you say you want to invest in seed? Well, I think it's more around not the size of the seed, but the ra the rationale for the seed. So, yep. there's a lot of companies we like to get to know uh, companies and the entrepreneurs really well. Um, and we have a pretty good network ourselves, but of course, there's, as you said, there's thousands of companies starting all the time, uh, so we can't, yes. obviously can't know everyone. Uh, so what, if there's interesting areas that we'd like to get uh, more familiar with the team, we think that it's an interesting team or it's an interesting um, sector, then that's the time that we'll make a seed investment and roughly around five, maybe up to around 6% of any given fund that we do will be seed investments, but the purpose of those seeds is to identify a few that will be, that's right, that will become full follow-on. And one of the problems, of course, for these micro, um, these micro funds or these micro VC investments is that it could be a one and done. In fact, many are one and done. So that means that the entrepreneur is left with having to go figure out, well, who else is going to be, who else can I get to invest in the company? And, you know, that's, that could take a while. So I think one of the, the benefits of having at least a seed philosophy and seed strategy is that we can participate in those early, um, in those early stages, but then also we can tell the, our entrepreneurs, look, depending upon how the business goes and how things work, we can also be follow-on investors. And um, when you choose to invest in a seed company, 
how much validation are you looking for um, in that business? Are you, you're not doing concept financing, I imagine. What, what is it that you uh, gauge for? What metrics? Uh, we're seeing all kinds of metrics from different VC firms that they're looking for before putting in Series A. I call those bankers. They're not actually VCs. Um, I mean, I'm sure they'll disagree with my comment, but um, the, uh, no, we actually do. We, we started ideation. Um, we've actually, I've, I've created okay. two companies at Wildcat. Um, my idea, um, I was the entrepreneur. I started them. I built the business. I recruited the, the personnel to then staff the company from okay. CEO on down. So we start there. I mean, that, uh, and I think that, I think we've lost, and I don't know why, but um, one reason is I think is that there was this idea that you could bring in people, you know, a traditional VC route was go to get an MBA from a, an Ivy League college, uh, go to work at Goldman, become a tech banker, and then move in, become a principal, and then move your way up. For the most part, that type, the, the, that route into venture has failed. Uh, among, many of those people never panned out. Um, what seems to be happening, which I think is actually a good thing, is in people coming from industry coming back in to do these investments who can add in the operating characteristics, you know, the operating um, principles into these into these companies. The um, uh, but if you want to, I think if you want to really do venture investing, um, the the venture part is is what I would determine or call PowerPoint investing, where there are not a lot of metrics. There are basically, we believe that there is a market. The market is described by X, Y, and Z parameters that the opportunity is to build a product or service to serve that market. There's some kind of evidence, some kind of market research that's gone on to provide some evidence of that particular opportunity. And then it's, okay, what kind of a team do we need? And when we use this traction gap framework, by the way, to help do the complete assessment, both in terms of the investment, the market, and then the team, um, and then a big bunch of diagnostics that we'll talk about. But the main thing that you're talking about is, hey, how do you find these metrics? Well, the metrics I have are basically um, have we done market due diligence? Have we gone out and actually talked to 50 companies? Have we done what Steve Blank okay. talks about? Get outside the four walls, right? And, uh, and actually talk to some people to verify that there might be some, you know, some veracity in the, in the market opportunity. Our customer validation methodology is completely about customer immersion and uh, getting as much feedback even before you write a line of code. Um, so we try to steer our entrepreneurs in that direction. And what about geography? Are you investing only in Silicon Valley or across the board? Well, our partners come from different parts of the country, uh, okay. so um, so that's that's pretty uh, that makes it kind of interesting. So Brian Stolly comes from Texas. He actually sits on the board of uh, University of Texas, so he kind of represents our southwestern investing. Um, uh, uh, Catherine Barr. Um, is our consumer investor, and she comes from Canada. So we have a number of Canadian investments. Uh, mm -hmm. And then Bill and I, Bill, um, Bill Erickson uh, and I, 
cover, um, we, we have a number of San Francisco-based investments, the SF Bay Area, but also we, um, we cover the Pacific Northwest. Bill spent a lot of time in Seattle, and, uh, and I have uh, an investment in Oregon and Seattle, so we kind of cover the, the Pacific Northwest. So we don't have coverage in the Midwest, uh, et cetera, but, uh, you know, for the most part, we cover from the East Coast all the way here. And then uh, we actually have in our in Wildcat we have an investment in a company in London, which is a pretty cool investment. Um, but uh, but so we're not just limited to the to um, the geographical U.S. But for the most part, okay. we, we right that's kind of that's the the range. And um, a couple of trend questions before we go to the traction gap framework. Yeah, you said you've invested in 22, 23 companies already. Um, what are those companies, some highlights and some analysis of why you've chosen those companies? Yeah, so first we sat down and we, we did some portfolio construction. I think it's super important for, for venture firms. One is that there's a lot of um, a, a lot of concern by limited partners when they make investments in venture firms about time to liquidity. So you need to be conscientious of that. And mm -hmm. so when we did our portfolio construction, we do some later stage investing. And the reason we do that is to generate some earlier returns so that um, it fights, it, it pays the management fees, it gets some liquidity early, and it fights something called a J curve, which is basically going into a, a negative return. So there's a reason for why you want to construct a portfolio that has some later stage stuff. The preponderance of our investing is in this traction gap period that we'll talk about, and then some in this very early stage around seed. So that gives us the ability to, the, the way that we look at companies is to look from stage uh, and to construct a portfolio along those terms. And then the what we invest in is the, um, so this would be the second vector. The what we invest in is our, our systems of intelligence that are being created both for consumer and for business that allow companies to prospect, refine, and monetize digital oil. And digital oil is just nothing more than data. And so the name Wildcat is built off of Wildcatter. And in, the, in, in those days, Wildcatters used data to determine where to drill. And so we use uh, data to determine where we want to invest, but we also use data as a future um, uh, currency that companies can can monetize through different business models. So one vector is systems of intelligence designed to allow companies to prospect, refine, and monetize digital oil, and that can be in a variety of markets, fintech, edtech, martech, uh, digital health, um, workplace innovation, and then all of those use technologies like blockchain, AIML, um, IoT, et cetera. So those are the underlying uh, computer science are those technologies, and then the markets um, that we invest in are in markets where we are subject matter experts, um, and that allows us to do early stage investing where we have domain expertise and we can actually be um, uh, in, in, um, in many cases uh, a member of the operating team to help them understand the market better and, and maybe sell into companies. So that's the, the what we invest in and then the when we invest as well. And largely enterprise software. 
Yeah, we have we do consumer. We have a number of consumer investments, um, and Catherine does most of those investing. I worked for a number of years at Apple, and what I realized at Apple is that uh, consumers are fickle. So it's easier to, uh, for me anyway, <clears throat> to identify big white spaces in the enterprise and to figure out a way to to solve for those inter um, solve for those white spaces. And in the last um, 12 months, what key trends have you seen in your deal flow? Um, well, let's see. Um, there's been a, uh, quite a bit of robotics deals that, ha that are materializing, um, which is um, – you know, and we're we're a little cautious on that because it's uh, all these. It, it kind of reminds me of med devices, right? There's a there's a um, there's a physical component. There's a bunch of different things that have to happen. Um, we don't have to go through some regulatory issues, but there's there's just a number of issues that you have to be concerned with around <clears throat> around uh, hardware that requires a lot of capital. And so, while we're very interested in those things, I think that. Um, we're also uh, very cautious about it. One of our associates is a as a ME out of out of Carnegie Mellon, uh, and he he's uh, doing a lot of our robot our robotics uh, research. The other thing are um, I think that's that's coming that we're seeing a lot of uh, of course is digital health, and um, and there's a, a variety of things. We're not very we're not very bullish on wellness, but other things that that change the model of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And uh, and those you know these can be challenging because those are very um, difficult markets. Um, well, at least in the healthcare is they're very difficult markets to to sell into. So uh, fortunately, Bill Erickson, one of our partners, has a long history of of being involved in uh, in the, the the healthcare market, and uh, we've got some very interesting investments there. So those are kind of the two things uh, that we see in terms of what to invest in. And. Um Last question on trends, and then we'll go to the traction grab framework. What do you make of unicorn mania, and how do you how do you parse it? How do you strategize, given that that is a factor in the market right now? Yeah, well, um, so a couple of things. Um, one is that uh, one of the reasons why we like to do early stage investing is that. Uh, you know, once things become, once there's a lot of, there's a bolus of capital that's been locked into a lot of what we would call the, the, the established firms, the ones that kind of sit up and down on Sand Hill. And they have a lot of capital to put to work. So once, at, once something is working, once it's been identified to be working, and I'll explain through this traction gap uh, framework when that is, once things are working, then what happens is you have a bunch of firms that rush in to put money in. And once they're in, what they want to do is to try to put more dollars to work in that, um, that particular deal. Even if it's not going to end up being a, a 10 times multiple, et cetera, um, a two or three times multiple can still be uh, quite effective to generate substantial returns if you're putting 50 million or 100 million. So what's happened is that a lot of these companies are offering, and you, you can see this in late stage, like TPG has a, has a growth fund uh, and others, um, to be able to basically lengthen out the time from uh, when a company needs to actually become a public company. So 
there's a lot of issues associated with that, and a lot of, I think a lot of perils that you need to be aware of if you're investing in those things, for, or if you're an employee. And, and this is something that I think employees of these companies need to be concerned with, because what doesn't become apparent is what the terms of, that, of those dollars are. Those dollars can come with um, a, um, a, what might be um, a transference of wealth from the employees into the investors. So for example, there might be a participating preferred um, uh, term put on the, on the dollars, which effectively says, hey, we're gonna take off the top of any IPO. We're gonna take, um, or if it's an M&A event, we're gonna take two, three times um, our dollars first, and then we're gonna participate with everybody else in the in the dilution of the IPO, and that can take um, that can take a lot of dollars off the table. Um, there could also be other uh, restrictions like when can it go public, et cetera. So you don't know those things; they're not exposed to the to the populace of the employees. And you think that you're going to have this great IPO event or M&A event, and what you realize is that actually your stock is worth substantially less than what you thought it was going to be. So that's one issue around this sort of unicorn mania where you've got a lot of companies trying to pr uh, propagate these companies um, uh, to stay um, uh, private uh, before going public. So that's one issue. The other part is just valuations. I mean, some of this stuff is, is pretty insane. And um, any hiccups in the business model, any hiccups in, you know, we've seen a couple of companies demonstrate some maybe ill behavior by management um, those kinds of things can cause tremendous issues within these companies. So I think that um, while the business may be working uh, in theory, there can be other issues that are associated with it. We try to, I mean, we have, um, you know, three, four, five companies that you would call unicorns from our prior investing um, that are currently private, and that's great, and they're doing well. Uh, but we invested in them when they were, you know, either ideas or very early stage. And uh, we're not counting on, you know, this unicorn status to make them successful. It's business model, controlling revenue, figuring out your business, the, the, your business. Um, those are the important things to focus on. So what is your strategy when you have a company like that that is, you know, has attained unicorn status and is being showered with capital from the later stage funds and the growth funds, do you sell out at that point? You can. Um, a lot of times, though, you know, there's restrictions. The company has to approve it. Uh, generally, you don't have controlling interest in that company. Um, and so there's a bunch of other investors around the table that may have a say in it. So there are secondaries that you can sell, you know, secondary markets that you can sell out into, and that is a strategy, and that's, that is uh, with, the, with the, the better investments that you do, um, there is a market for those, and that is a way to liquidity. Um, so um, I think that, uh, you know, not a lot of this is really disclosed that, that often, um, but, you know, you get contacted when people know that you've got uh, an investment in a, in a hot company. You know, there's, there are people who are willing to invest at this moment because they're not looking for a 10 or 20 times return. They're looking for a two or three times return. So there's different predators that roam in the financial, in the financial market. <laughs> and, they <laughs> and they tend to hunt you down. 
Yeah. 